Thank you, orchestra. What a great reminder of all the blessings that we see come now, fount of every blessing. Um, you know, as we're in Luke chapter 15 today, as we start again this month of missions, again, and we don't relegate the month of missions to this month, but it's an extra celebration of the missional calling that we've been given. I think it's just so wonderful that we find ourselves in Luke chapter 15 in the midst of our, our natural study because we see here the lost and found of the parable of the lost son, of the prodigal son. And so you think about back to those days of elementary school when there was always that lost and found box. Maybe it was most of the time it was in the, uh, the office of the principal. And it was this big box. A lot of times it was just kind of an open cardboard box. There would be jackets and there would probably be lunch boxes from who knows when with like petrified sandwiches in there. Who knows what you'd find in the lost and found box. You know, I think there's probably like a portal to another dimension. It just seemed like that stuff never moved. It was always in there. The lost and found. You also think about public transportation and also the airline industry, that you find some really strange things that show up in the lost and found that were left on public transportation or in the airline industry. You know, in the airline industry, what they do when there's lost bags, they have a requisite amount of time in which they can be claimed, and after that, they put the stuff up for auction. Some of the things they put up for auction, some of the things they'll actually set up a store and a warehouse, and you can come through and peruse the things, and buy them. And so here's some pictures of some really strange things that were found in either public transportation or found in airlines. This is a samurai cow. Now, I think, help me, help, help me uh, check this, fact check this. Did not Chick-fil-A have one of their cow calendars one time and where there was a samurai cow? I'm thinking what, that's what that is. That's the, there you go. I think that's the only explanation I could think of to have a, oh, you own it? <laughs> that he owns that man I should if I'd have been thinking I could have had you just bring in the real deal that is awesome so I was right that is a Chick-fil-a something or no no it's cows on parade you're kidding me that's what that is wow who would have thought we'd have had the answer to this today if I would known I'd put that one at the end my goodness how are we going to beat that now look at the next picture we have here this is a cowboy armadillo. Now, do you have an answer for this, what this is from? Surely you don't. <laughs> no, you don't. Nothing on this one. Uh, this is pretty cool. This is a taxidermy armadillo dressed like a cowboy. That'd be kind of fun to have in, in your office, don't you think? It's a, oh, you have something like that, too? Oh, oh my gosh. We got, <laughs> we got two people that have two of these items here today. How is this happening? Look at the next one. Now, do you know, surely someone doesn't have this. This is like a shark that was left on public transportation. You actually see the bench. Okay, next one. Let's take a look at the next one here. Now, this is just a picture of an outboard motor, obviously, but this was actually left on public transportation in, in England. They left an outboard motor on public transportation. Next picture. Let's take a look. Vacuum-sealed frogs. Vacuum-sealed frogs. Now, I'm thinking this is... It's a science, you know, for a science class, dissecting frogs, but still the fact that you would have these left. Okay, next picture here. And now this is the best of all. Look at this guy. This was actually part of, of unclaimed luggage, and he bought this. This guy won the day here by having the most epic kitty cat sweatshirt you could ever imagine. So now does anyone have that cat sweatshirt? Anyone? No, I didn't think so. Well, this is kind of all, of course, tongue-in-cheek and really fun, but we think about when we come to Luke chapter 15, the greatest story of lost and found that we've ever seen, the greatest story we've ever seen of the lost sinner who is then saved. Starting in verse 11, we see here 
Jesus said to the group, a certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. And when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in the land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, for no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, don't you love that turning point in the story? When he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have enough bread and then some to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise, go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father, but when he was still a great way off, his father saw him, had compassion, ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand, bring the fatted calf that we may kill it and let us eat and be merry for my son was dead and is alive. He was lost and now he is found. Lord God, as we think about this beautiful parable, which your son Jesus told so many years ago as he walked this earth, what a wonderful picture it is of the sinner who is lost, but he is found in Jesus Christ. Lord God, we thank you for your graciousness to us. We thank you for your goodness to us, and that while we were so undeserving of your love and your grace and your mercy, you gave it so lavishly. Lord, we thank you for all that you do. In the name of Jesus, we do pray. Amen. Amen. When we think about this passage, many times this passage has been taught uh, in context of a believer, someone who's given their life to Jesus Christ and has strayed in that relationship. That relationship with with the Lord has been strained. But really when we look at this passage, we can see very clearly from the context of Luke chapter 15 that this story is primarily about the sinner who is lost and is saved. We think about earlier in chapter 15, we see the parable of the lost sheep in which God is is pictured as the shepherd. God the Father is pictured as the shepherd in which he leaves the 99 sheep to go and search and search for the one. And when that sheep is found, there's rejoicing. And Jesus says in the same way, when that lost sinner is saved, there is rejoicing in heaven over even that one. The following parable as well, the parable of lost coin in which the woman has lost this one coin and she sweeps the house, turns the house upside down, looking for this one coin. Again, a picture of the repentant sinner who comes in and, and heaven and God is overjoyed at their repentance. And so we see here now as a believer in Jesus Christ, those of us who sit here today who are on the other side of that parable, who have been like that sheep that was lost, have been like that coin that was lost, that now have been found and we've been made whole and made new, we've been born again as Jesus says, and we're welcomed into the family of God. Why does this passage matter for us? Why does it matter for us today? Well, outside of the fact that it is one of the most beautiful pictures of our salvation, it also matters to us for a couple of reasons. 
number one, even though, yes, we are pictured as the son, the younger son, at the end of the parable, that we, if we have given our lives to Jesus Christ, we are like that son, that sinner who came to the place where they have returned to God, they've been forgiven, cleansed, made new, welcomed into the family of God. We are pictured as the younger son at the end of the parable. At times in our life, we can act like the younger son at the beginning of the parable, right? There are times, especially as this parable speaks primarily to repentance, there are times in our life where we can forget that wonderful relationship with the Lord. We can live the way we want to live, and that relationship can be strained. And so, yes, by very principle, we can draw that, that uh, principle of repentance out for our lives. We can, even though we be like the younger son at the end of the parable, we can act like the younger son at the beginning. Not only that, but we can have, even though we are the younger son at the end of the parable, we can act like the older son. Look with me, if you will, to verse 25, not primarily in our main focus of our passage today, but we do see this attitude of the older son in which it says that the older son returned from his errands and he's wondering what in the world is going on here. There's this incredible party being thrown. What's going on? And so one of the servants turns to the older son and says, haven't you heard? Your younger brother has returned and the father is overjoyed and he's made feast and he's made merry. And so now it says that in verse 28, but he, the older son, was angry, would not go in, and therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. And so he answered and said to his father, lo, these these many years I have been serving you, have never transgressed your commandment at any time. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. You see, those uh, in Jesus's immediate context and the original hearers of the crowd of Jesus those who had their spiritual ears open knew exactly who was pictured by the older brother it was the Hebrew establishment of day especially the religious leaders especially the Pharisees who looked down their noses upon all those who were sinners all those first and foremost who were non-Jews known as the Gentiles And they especially looked down upon them through their nose because they had forgotten the fact that they as a people weren't special, weren't chosen by God because they were special, but they were special unto God because they were chosen. They were given the same grace of God at years past in their history that these sinners were receiving now. So even though we are like the older brother, younger brother at the end of the story, we can act like the older brother when we forget to have a heart like the Father. We must have a heart like the Father, a heart that's broken for, for those that don't know Christ as their Savior, those who have not been forgiven and cleansed. We need to have that same loving heart of the Father. You see, we as believers in Jesus Christ, we weren't just saved to sit. It's so appropriate for this month of missions. We weren't just saved to sit. We were saved and we were sent. We were sent into the world to display and to show and to care for others with that same loving heart of the Father. And so then again here as we return to verses 11 and 12, we see that there came two sons and the younger of the sons said to the father, Father, give me a portion of the goods that falls to me. Now many commentators have said this is pretty much tantamount to him asking or saying, you know, Father, I'd rather you be dead. At the very least, it's saying, you know, I'd rather have what I can get from your death than I care about that relationship with you. And as the Father is pictured, or as God is pictured by the Father, in in, in the same way in our lives, if we remember back to the time, those of us who are 
who are saved in Jesus Christ, if we can remember back to the time in our life before we were saved, we can almost be pictured in that same way as though God, you know, I don't want God looking over my shoulders. I don't want God's guardrails in my life. You know, I don't, I don't want any sort of God looking over my shoulder, piling on rules, looking to pound me. There could be nothing further from the truth about the true picture of who God is. He's not a God that's looking to, over our shoulder, looking to pound us, giving us rules and, and unnecessary guardrails and boundaries. But those very things, those guardrails and those boundaries are given to us for our joy and our satisfaction, for our protection. But in the same way, this son had given up the abundant life in the house of his father for self-indulgence. So that is the picture of the one who has not come to faith in Jesus Christ. Given up all of the possible abundance of the relationship with God for a life of destructive self-indulgence. And we see here in verse 13 as well, and not many days after that, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. You know, when we travel to the far country, proverbially in life, it always seems like the grass is always greener on the other side. We all can always think that walking outside those guardrails of God, that, that, that far country always has the greener grass, but the grass is never ever greener in the far country. But it says when he did this, when he traveled to this far country, it said that he wasted his life with prodigal living. You know, the word prodigal there is wasteful as well. So it's almost like a purposeful redundancy to just really hammer home what he had done. He was wasting his life with wasteful living of waste. He was wasting his life. You know, and we might have a common context of this, a modern context in which it's just, you know, living for the party scene, living for having, you know, going down to the club, having bottle service at the club. Some of you don't have a clue what that is. I barely have a clue what that is. But it's like you're a high roller down at the club and you just have them keep bringing you bottles because it's a societal thing. It's a status symbol in society, party living. But maybe it's not something that obvious. Maybe not a one-to-one context that we see here with, with this prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. Maybe it's the issues of life. We're just kind of drowning out with things in life. Maybe we're just kind of drowning it out with just binge-watching TV. We're drowning out the issues of life. Maybe we're just trying to forget those issues of life with just wasteful things, whatever it may be. Maybe we're just kind of hoping the issues of life away with the fact that we can just have the approval of others. Whatever it may be, wasteful living. You see, life is wasted with any other pursuit other than Christ. And a couple of weeks ago, I quoted from the book, Don't Waste Your Life, by one of our great Christian authors, modern Christian authors, John Piper. I want to quote from that again. It says this, The really wonderful moments and joy in this world are not moments of self-satisfaction, but they're moments of self-forgetfulness. Meaning when we're not placing ourselves number one and we're trying to do all that we can to put ourselves number one, but self-forgetfulness. I love how he describes it here. He says, standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon and contemplating your own greatness is pathological. You get that picture? Standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon and contemplating your own greatness is pathological. Maybe it's standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon and we're just trying to figure out how many likes we have on our Facebook post. Maybe we're standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon and we're trying to figure out how many times our our Twitter post has been retweeted. Contemplating our own greatness is pathological. And he says it's basically uses that as an illustration for what life is. At such moments, we were made for magnificent joy that comes from outside of ourselves. You know, we can do all that we can. If you sit here today and you don't know Christ as your Savior, 
We can try to do all that we can to overcome our human nature. But no matter what we do, God created us to find our joy and our satisfaction in him. We can do all that we want to to try to overcome that and try to find it in a circuitous route. But God has made us. That is how he's wired us to find our significance and our distinction and our joy and a life lived for his glory. Anything else is a wasted life. Verses 14 through 16. And here's where we'll find almost just our three points today. Not the overarching points, but we're going to have three kind of quick succession points that we'll find here in these three verses. Verses 14 through 16 say this, But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. And so he went and he joined himself to a citizen of that country. He was hired by this man, and, he, and this man sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, because no one gave him anything. If you think about that, if we kind of almost start in reverse order of the verses, when you look at that picture of the swine, you could think of no more degrading job for the Hebrew than, than, than feeding pigs. As you probably well know, f- pigs in general were thought to be an unclean animal to the Hebrews of the day. Not just that they were dirty in, in, in sort of a sanitary way, but they were ceremonially unclean. So much so that they actually became picture of the entire Gentile community, those that would would have pigs and eat pork. And I'm telling you, I love pork. I love bacon. I love the whole thing. You know, there's no better food than bacon, in my opinion. Chocolate and bacon, maybe, you know, chocolate, bacon, something or other would be great. But in their days, that, that just what it did came to picture, not just the, the, the ceremonially unclean pigs, but they represented Gentile culture as a whole. Really, even in this day, in some certain circles in the Middle East, where it be a Jewish community or an Arab community, it's still one of the greatest insults that you can have in that part of the world is to call someone a pig because they're thought to just be unclean animals. So could you imagine a more degrading job for a Jew? He wasn't just willing to work, you know, just willing to touch a pig. It wasn't even just eating a pig. He was willing to eat like a pig. He had just become devastated. And see, that's the first point. The world brings devastation. The world brings devastation. So again, we're going to have three kind of quick points right here. Not overarching points of this message, but three quick points here that speak to these specific verses. The world delivers devastation. Absolutely. Absolutely, when we live for the world. So if we kind of go back up into verses 14 and 15, we also see this, that a severe famine came in the land and he was in want. The world always wins. The world always wins, or to say it another way, the world delivers loss. The world delivers loss. You know, Proverbs 13, 15 says, the way of the sinner is hard. The way of the sinner is hard. And God, you can almost hear the loving voice of a father through the writer of Proverbs giving us that verse and saying, the way of the sinner is hard. You can live all you want to try to live it up and find distinction and satisfaction and joy in this world. But all you will find for yourself is hardship. The world always wins. The world always brings loss. You know, you think about if we were to hop on I-35 here and drive a little further down I-35, right there at the kind of the Mulvane exit, you would see uh, Kansas Star Casino. You drive a little further down, you drive in Oklahoma, you see casino after casino dotting the landscape. 
go all the way down towards kind of southern Oklahoma and you see Windstar Casino, which I passed, you know, kind of coming back and forth from Kansas to Texas over the last 15 years. And that thing started from like a little sprung kind of vinyl building to it's this incredible metropolis now. It's like mil probably millions of square feet of, uh, of building there. And what it reminds you of is that casinos don't lose, okay? The, you know, patrons will win from time to time. And in fact, that's good for business because they want you to think that you're going to win enough. But on the level, casinos don't lose. That is a perfect illustration of the world. We might find pleasure from time to time. Satan as it is, or the world as it is, Satan's system for hooking us and snaring us, distracting us from the way that we've been created to live in God. It is a perfect illustration. We may find pleasure from time to time. We may find just enough wins to just get hooked into what the world says will bring us happiness, distinction, satisfaction. And it says there also that no one, at the end of verse 16, no one gave him anything. The world delivers emptiness emptiness you know there's that saying we if someone over promises and under delivers and over, someone who over promises and under delivers and any of you that own your own business or you've just worked for business in general you know that is just a death nail to a business to get the reputation of over promising and under delivering right in fact i was following a guy the other day and his truck said we under promise and we over deliver he was trying to flip the Flip the script on that, and I kind of understood what he was doing, but I think almost it would have been better to just say, we promise high and we deliver high, something like that. But that's exactly what God does. God doesn't over-promise and under-deliver like the world does. He promises greatness to you and glory and happy, happiness and distinction and joy, and he delivers every bit of it, every bit of it. But the world delivers emptiness. So again, as we continue into this passage, we see here in verses 17 through 19, but when, the, but when he had come to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare and I perish with hunger? I'll arise and go to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. There is so much power in that one phrase that leads out this section of those verses. But when he came to himself, when he came to himself, that is a wonderful encapsulation of biblical repentance. You know, the world doesn't like the word repentance. You know, it might seem kind of like an antiquated word. It also speaks of humbling ourselves, which we're not very good at doing. It, it speaks of admitting that we're wrong, which we're also not very good at doing. But there are few words in all of Scripture that are more beautiful than the word repentance. The word repentance. It means that we are heading in one direction and we come to ourselves, we come to our senses, we realize this is wrong. This is bringing me nothing of what I thought it would bring. And I'm going to turn around and I'm going to turn towards Jesus Christ. Repentance is such a wonderful and beautiful word. It's kind of encapsulated again with coming to ourselves. You know, he said three things that kind of picture this repentance. I've sinned. I've sinned. He agreed with God. When we think about repentance, coming to Christ, giving our lives to Christ, it means that we come to that place where I agree with God that I've sinned. I'm not trying to argue about it. God, I'm not trying to tell you that I'm basically a good person. Things are okay. You can let me slide, can't you? I agree with you that I've sinned. I'm not worthy to save myself, but I need Jesus Christ to save me. And also we see here that he was willing to do anything 
That speaks of a lordship as well. We don't just give our lives to Jesus Christ as the one who saves us of our sin, but we give our lives to him as the Lord of our life. We give him the keys of our life, that wonderful picture of repentance. And then again here, as we kind of bring it into home, it's here in verses 20 and following. And he arose, and he came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion, ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And he said, he said to his father, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand, sandals on his feet, bring the fatted calf, kill it, let us eat and be merry. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he is found. We see this incredible picture of of a God, a loving father in the midst of our lostness and our death who is not a hostile God. He is not an aloof God. He's not a distant God. You know, when we think about Hinduism, they have gods upon gods upon gods, but they're kind of one all overarching impersonal force is just that. They believe it's this force of the universe that's an impersonal absolute. In Islam, there is one God, but he is, un, he is unknowable and he's impersonal. At very best, you can receive mercy from him. In Buddhism, it's really a non-theistic religion at all, and it's very man-centered. But when we see the God of the Bible, the one true God, how he relates himself, when he paints a picture of who he is, he paints a picture of himself as this loving father who is eager with open arms, waiting for the sinner to return. Kind of think about this with me. You know, we all, maybe we've been out of practice, maybe when we were kids, we would daydream a lot better. Maybe we could just envision things. Or maybe you like to read, and maybe... Like me, when you read a book, sometimes the movie version isn't as good because you can just imagine it with just kind of greater clarity and vividness in your mind. Whatever it may be, kind of go to that spot where, where you imagine, where you daydream. Just kind of paint this picture with me if you can. Imagine the father is there working in the field and supervising some of his servants. Maybe it's the heat of summer. Maybe they're gathering harvest and he's wiping the sweat from his brow working hard and kind of there upon the horizon, just kind of cresting the hill, he can see a figure, see just a head poking up over the hill. And he says to the servant nearest to him, oh, this is a great day, we have visitors today. He goes on about his business, and again, as the figure continues to crest the hill, he begins to just see this unmistakable gait, this unmistakable walk. And with trembling hands and Tears in his eyes, he drops all that he has and he begins to set out on a walk, a hopeful walk. He begins to set out on a walk and as he gets closer, he begins to jog, ignoring just the pain in his ankles, the pain in his knees, the heaving of his chest. And he sets out in a full-on run with all that he can and he gets to his son, he runs and runs and he gets to his son and he throws his arms around his son and he kisses his son and he says, my son, my son, you are lost. But now you are found. That is the picture that God paints of himself when he pictures his pursuit of you. That he is a loving father, willing to forgive, gracious, loving, and kind. Folks, we were not reluctantly saved by God. We were lavishly saved by God. You know, this man, the world gave this man nothing. 
The world gives us nothing. But God, he gives us everything. He gives us all of who he is, and he gives to us all of who we were meant to be. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you. That in fact, you are not just a distant, impersonal force. You aren't just someone who at best shows us mercy, but you are unknowable and impersonal. But Lord, you are the loving Father. And Lord, for those of us who are here today in this room and we are saved, we are born again, we've given our lives to Jesus Christ, we have repented, we've turned, and we've turned to Jesus. Help this to be a time in which we remember with all the glory of our salvation. We remember how wonderful and how loving you were. And may it spurn us on again to live out that very loving heart that you have for the lost of this world. God, I pray for those that are here today and they are not Christians. They have not given their lives to Jesus Christ. They are not born again. But God, maybe for days, maybe weeks, maybe months, maybe years, Lord, you've been drawing them to yourself. God, may this be the day that they truly in all great clarity see your loving heart for all that it is. And may they be like that son that finally comes to their senses and they humble themselves and they turn unto you. We thank you for all that you do and all that you give us. In the name of Christ we do pray. Amen. We come now.